Good morning. Howdy, everybody. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Kyle. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thank you. Um, man, we're excited you guys are here this morning. Last week, I kind of talked about the way the next few weeks would work and just talked about the fact that we're hoping to do some family business over the coming weeks. And so last week, we had a really sweet time of prayer at the end of the service, and it was just really awesome to hear some of you guys pray out, and uh, I wish we could have gone longer, and I hope to do that more in uh, the months to come. This morning, we have five people being baptized uh, at the end of the service, pretty awesome, and so you'll have a chance to hear from them and, and um, watch them get baptized this morning, and then next week, we'll be taking communion together, and so what, what sweet kind of three family weeks leading up to Christmas Eve and the night that we get to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. So uh, last week I talked a little bit about the fact that we're going to camp out in the book of Philippians for the next few weeks. So if you want to open with me to Philippians chapter 2, that's where we'll be. Uh, Last week I talked about the fact that Paul was writing this letter, he was penning this book as an encouragement to his brothers and sisters in the church of Philippi. And so many of Paul's epistles were written to sort of correct various issues in the church. But Philippians is a little bit different. It's this letter written to send hope to a people that were experiencing hardship as a result of their following Jesus in a culture that was far from God. And so we kicked off the series by talking about joy last week, which seems fitting in the midst of this Christmas season and during Advent But it seems a bit paradoxical that Paul would write this letter to the church in Philippi, boasting of his joy and his hope that he's found from within this prison cell, as we talked about last week. But Paul understood that love and joy and peace and hope, these things we celebrate in the season and even through Advent, were possible even when you found yourself in the worst of circumstances in your life as he did. And so for Paul, He's learning from a prison cell that joy and and peace and hope and love aren't things that just happen. Um, They aren't traits that you just conjure up. Um, And they certainly aren't dictated by our circumstances the way that happiness might be in our lives. But joy and peace and hope and love are things that we choose to live into regardless of what's coming against us and what we're facing from the outside. So I wanted to recap a little bit like, about how Paul ended up in prison, because it's kind of an interesting story. Paul makes his way to Philippi and, and with, with Silas, and they begin sharing Christ the minute they get to Philippi. And one of the first people to give their lives to the Lord was this woman named Lydia. And Lydia, it said, was very wealthy, and she made her living uh, dealing in purple cloth, selling as a dealer of purple cloth. But then in Acts chapter 16... You see that there's this slave girl that's following Paul and Silas around. And it says that this girl was possessed. She had the ability to predict the future. She was like a a fortune teller. And so this is how her owners made money off of her, was by her telling people's fortunes, and then they would make their living off of her. So she would tell people their futures. They would pay her owners for service. And then Acts 16 describes the fact that this girl's following them around, And she continues shouting to everybody that these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. 
So she's possessed and she's exclaiming this um, to everybody else. She's, she's calling them out in the crowds. And so this goes on for days. And then eventually what happens is Paul gets sort of frustrated with the fact that this girl's following him around and she's shouting this stuff everywhere they're going. And so Paul stops and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And it says that the minute Paul prays this, the spirit leaves this girl. And so when the owners of the slave girl find out what's, what's happened, uh, what Paul did, they actually realize that their hope of making money off this girl is no longer. Because what they had her for no longer exists because now she's been set free. She's no longer possessed. It's a cool story. And so they go after Paul and Silas and they seize them. They take them before the authorities. They make this claim that these men are Jews. They, they, they say that these men are throwing our city into an uproar because these men are advocating customs that are unlawful for Romans to accept or practice. And so this crowd joins in in this attack and these authorities order that they get stripped and then they, they get flogged. And so after this, they're thrown into prison and they're locked up. So this is where we kind of catch up with Paul in this prison cell. This is why he's been put away. Now, I, I say all that this morning. It sounds like kind of like a downer for a Christmas service, right? But Paul's circumstances are far from ideal in his life. He, he has every right to be frustrated. He's been persecuted and imprisoned essentially for, for claiming that Christ is king and delivering this slave girl from oppression. And yet all they can see uh, is that they're throwing, all they can say about him is that they're throwing our city into an uproar. Like, what these guys are doing is actually making things right, and we don't want things made right. They're causing disruption, like they need to be dealt with. And so there's the context of his imprisonment. And so as he sits in prison, <clears throat> he pens this letter to the church in Philippi as this reminder to them and encouragement to them to stay the course, to actually find hope in the midst of their circumstances, to actually be at peace with one another. This is amazing call to the church at that time to come together in the season like you're going to need each other and I can't help but read through Philippians and think for us today in the culture that we're surrounded in that we need one another that, that Paul's words spoken to the church in Philippi are just as strongly to us today as it was to them then this call to come together this call to find hope and joy even in the midst of horrible circumstances. And so when we celebrate Advent, this is sort of what we celebrate, that there was an initial Advent, an initial arrival, right? Jesus came as a baby in a manger, born into this dark world, and he brought light. He was born into this world that was full of confusion, that was lacking peace, that was lacking hope and joy and love. This is why Jesus came to us, to bring us peace, hope, joy, and love on earth in the midst of a world that lacks all of these things. But God didn't just come to us as a baby. The reality is that he's still with us today. That by his spirit, he dwells amongst us. And even today, he's bringing this same hope, joy, peace, and love. And, but we, what we receive now is even a foretaste sort of the appetizer for what's to come because one day in eternity when the world will be void of darkness and the mess that it's in now and be restored back to the original state that God created it in, we will live with him in eternity forever 
void of any setback that we face today. Is that not good news? That's good news. So there's our hope. But as I transition into a different passage today, what I want us to look at is what is the outward expression of these things? Because it's easy in church to talk about choosing joy and choosing hope and choosing to love and choosing to, to be at peace. Uh, it's easy to talk about being internally transformed, which is awesome. But Paul's words to us in this next part of Philippians are really for us to follow Christ's lead in the way we allow love and joy and peace and hope and these things to emanate through us. And so that's my hope in the next few minutes. We'll look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, and specifically ask ourselves the question, what do we do with the hope, joy, peace, and love that we've been given? Was it given to us just to hoard it up within ourselves, or are we called to expend it or to empty ourselves? Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for each and every individual in this room. God, I don't take it for granted that you've brought them here for a reason this morning. God, I pray that you would step into our messes. God, you see right where every person in this room is at. You know what they're feeling. You know the pain that some are in. You know the hopelessness that some feel, the lack of joy that some feel. And I pray, Jesus, that you step in to this moment with us. God, show us that there's a much bigger picture at play, God, that it isn't just about what we feel and what we experience on the outside, but there's something bigger that you're doing within us, and the byproduct of what it is you're doing within us actually pans out in the way that we begin to treat one another. And so I pray this morning, God, that you do the work in our hearts that only you can do, and we offer up this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys with me? Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Let's start there. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, <clears throat> any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The, the first verses here of chapter two in Philippians are coming from this context of suffering for Christ. That's Paul spent chapter one kind of diving into this. He, he's finished up saying in chapter one that suffering is actually a gift. And, and so we approach that gift with courage. We approach that gift with in, in unity, uh, in Christ. And then there's these verses one and two of chapter two. And so in this context, Paul makes this sort of proposition to the Philippians by asking them to make his joy complete, is what Paul says. And so he's speaking from experience to say that even in suffering, there's actually encouragement in Jesus. Like, he, he, he can be built up in remembering what Christ has done for him and even what Christ is going to do. Like, that's the hope portion. And he knows there's comfort and love, that, that through the pain and uncertainty, uh, the, the love of God and, and of his brothers and his sisters in Christ sort of provided this tangible comfort in the worst of seasons for Paul. 
And he knows that he's participating with the Holy Spirit. And this point speaks to the loneliness and weakness. Like even when no one is on your team and when you have no strength, the Holy Spirit is with you and the Holy Spirit is actually fighting for you. That's good news. But how do we complete this joy? Like what an interesting thing for Paul to say. Like what does this mean? He says, if you love me, And if you sympathize with me, then make my joy complete, is what Paul says. So notice everything that he's about to ask them to do is about how they actually relate to one another, to each other, to the body of Christ, like as the church. He says, here's how you can complete my joy. And he gives this list. He says, be of the same mind, the same love, full accord, one mind. Let there be no selfish ambition, no conceit, Count others as better than yourselves. Look out for others. And the Philippians essentially wanted to be these joy completers for Paul, like in the same way that we should desire to be these completers for one another. Like what would it take for you to complete his joy, for you to complete her joy? What would it take for you to live that out? So, you know, Paul didn't mention any tangible things on this list, did he? For instance, like, he doesn't mention, like, completing my joy by providing me a steak dinner, right? Or completing my joy by giving me stacks of cash. Like, that would just make me super joyful. He doesn't mention completing his joy by letting the Seahawks win a game for a change, right? Like, he doesn't mention any tangible things. He gives this list. And according to Philippians 2, There's actually a lot of like sameness and selflessness in loving each other well. And so you want to talk about countercultural and living in this upside down kingdom that we've been talking about all through the book of Matthew, then here it is. Because we are not immersed in a selfless culture who loves each other well. That's just reality. We don't live in that. It seems like our culture is more defined by sides than it is actually working together and becoming one. And that word accord can also mean conformity. It can mean unison. Like, I mean, that's why I'm wearing my union shirt this morning, right? Um, <laughs> it means unison. I mean, can, can you believe Paul's challenging, challenging these people to have the same mind and to have the same love? Like, where in the world does that come from? How can you have the same mind and the same love? Like, aren't we all supposed to be different, right? Don't we live in a world where we're all supposed to be unlike anybody else and we're supposed to embrace our uniqueness as people? And so now this sort of sameness and, and, and this uniqueness is sort of this healthy tension for the Christian to live in. That you are supposed to be the same, but you're also unique. You're supposed to be together, but you're also separate. And so on one side, God created us with with unique talents, with unique interests, with unique tastes. And so we have different experiences, different strengths, different weaknesses in our life. And to ignore that and say that we should all act and be the same would be unwise, right? Like it would actually belittle God's creativity. It's possible, though, to make idols of tradition and conformity. And on the other hand, if we put individuality above God's plan for us to be a part of his church, 
then we actually make an idol out of uniqueness, which is what you actually see transpiring in our culture now. We can't be one because we all have to be different. We all have to be on a side. But, but if being you hurts somebody else or draws attention away from Jesus, then maybe you're being the wrong version of you that God has called you to be. And so here's some helpful questions that, that I kind of wrote down that I think we can ask when we think about our individuality in the context of the kingdom. One, like, is my individuality building up others and specifically the church? Is how God wired me and built me, is it, is it building other people up? Is it edifying the church? Two, am I putting the gospel of Jesus above all of my preferences in my life? We talk about being all about Jesus a lot at this church, and it sounds like a very simple cliche statement, but when you dive into the intricacies of that statement, it's really like, what does it look like in all facets of your life to live all for God? That God owns your marriage and your home life and your work situations, your relationships with others, that God is king of all of those facets of your life. Three, do I care more about how people perceive me or about how people perceive Christ in me? Which one do I care more about? Four, do people feel encouraged after spending time with me? That's a really good question to ask. Are we joy completers? Like, do people feel built up after spending time with us? And lastly, how well did I serve the needs of the people around me? How well did I put others before myself? And, and these questions are countercultural questions because our culture asks questions like, do I feel encouraged after spending time with other people? Do I feel encouraged after spending time with other people? Our culture asks questions like, did other people serve me well when I was around them? Did I get everything I needed out of those relationships, out of that situation? But here, sort of, Christ has called us to something better, right? And, and it's not to say that our culture stinks, but, but Christ is calling us to something that is odd to our culture. It's something that does not make sense. And these questions get to the heart of Paul's completed joy. What are we going to do with what he's put in us? And so when the church has this unified goal of Christ proclaimed and honored and a deep humility in themselves, like when the church thinks less about themselves and more about others, man, something amazing starts to happen in the church as people start to come together because it's no longer about choosing sides or getting what I want, but laying my life down for somebody else. And I think one of the most important verses for the church today is even in verse four. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. There's this selflessness in this verse, and it says that we should constantly be looking out for others, that we need to be thinking of not only our own desires and our own goals, but thinking about other people. And so when I walk into a restaurant, what's the question I can ask the minute I walk into that restaurant? How is the server more important than me today? When I walk into a room, how am I putting others before myself in this situation? Because I guarantee, like, the, the older I get, the more difficult it is for me to be around mass groups of people. And I don't know about you, but I find myself in situations where I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know, like, 
There's so many people, and they're so frustrating. You know, like, oh, my gosh. I'm, like, walking through the parade downtown. I'm just like, oh, good Lord, you know, like, (laughs) keep my head down. (laughs) But the question I rarely ask is, like, if it's not about me, then how am I putting others before myself when I engage a crowd, when I engage a person? In all aspects of my life, how am I putting others before me? And the selflessness in this verse is amazing. And when God gets a hold of our heart like this, there's a shift that happens in our desires. And that's what God's word does in us. It actually shifts our desires and our thoughts. Verse 5, he says, have this mind among yourselves. So there's all these practical things in, in the verses prior, right? Like actions, how do you complete his joy? But then he shifts in verse five, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in who? Do you have to conjure up this mind? Is it up to you to try to find this mind and make this mind happen and make these things happen? He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was born, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. A verse, if you grew up in the church, you've been around it at all, you've heard this verse over and over again. And I often think it's the verses that we hear over and over again that we know tend to be the ones that we like to ignore because we know them, right? I know it, I don't want to think about it. So when, when the Lord calls it to mind, it means it's prompting me to do something about it. I don't want to do anything about it. So, so you get this picture of this completed joy. And so now he, he moves on to this humbled mind, right? Like a large part of this completed joy in us is having a humbled mind, being a humble person. So verses 5 through 11 is sometimes referred to as the Christ hymn because there's a lot of scholars that, that, that believe that maybe this passage was actually sung amongst the early church and not just taught. It was something they would actually sing. And there's a really cool connection with verses 1 through 4 and verses 5 through 11. It, it really says as joy completers, we live this way. And the virtue that gets you there is actually humility, which sounds so weird. Do these things with humility. <laughs> and that virtue, this virtue of humility is actually not conjured up on your own, but it's brought to you by who? By Christ. And it's important to us because it was important to Jesus. Like humility is the starting point of the gospel for us. When these people come and get baptized this morning, what are they saying? I'm literally dying to myself, and I'm being raised again to new life in Jesus. In the same way that Jesus was pinned to this cross, and he died to himself, and he laid down even his, his ability to look like God, right? He, he became a man, and he died a brutal death on a cross. For you and I, he humbled himself to that point in order to grant us new life. And so what he's saying here is that it really does start with humility, but it starts with a humility that actually is birthed in us through Jesus, who set this example for us. And because he set this example for us, we actually are gonna live into the example that Jesus has set. That's it. The mind that we've been given as followers of Jesus, 
literally is the mind of Christ. Like that's the gift that God gave you. And so you think and act in partnership with Jesus. Like did you know that you've been given this mind from Christ? Like he gave you the gift of a mind. Like what, what is that mind? It's a humble mind. It's a mind that sort of rejects my self-importance and this idol of, of, of self and sees God as most important and others second to him. It puts others before ourselves. And this new mind, it doesn't come at the expense of self-care. Like, you can still care for yourself well without idolizing yourself, can't you? You can still take care of yourself without worshiping yourself. And the truth is, if you're not doing a good job caring for your mind, caring for your body, your heart, you're not going to do a good job caring for others. Like, you need to care for yourself in the same way. Follow the model that Jesus set for you. Live into this, and in doing so, allow what he's afforded us to be afforded to others. Like, take your mind off yourself. And Jesus gave you this humble mind. So Paul teaches us that this, present, this precedent of that mind in verses six through eight. And so why do you get this humble mind? Like, how is this humble mind given to you? Verses six through eight. Like, Jesus had the greatest reason for self-importance. He had the greatest reason to elevate himself. He was God. He is God. Jesus was in the form of God and still did not take for himself all of the rights and the privileges that came with that position and with his existence. He didn't count his deity as something that was to be grasped. He didn't use that reality for his own gain, and he could have, but instead, what did Jesus do? He empties himself, and he takes the form of a servant. Like God himself became a servant. The, the one who most deserves to be served lowers himself to be a servant of those who deserve the least to be served. And this word form here is kind of, it can be kind of a confusing word. Paul's not at all saying that Jesus was God in heaven and became something other than God on earth. He's not saying that. He didn't become something different or he didn't give up his godship. He simply lowered himself. Like this word form is more of an appearance word than it is sort of a, like a structure of being word. It's an appearance thing. Like as he came born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he was taking the appearance of man and so when he humbled, when he emptied himself, he didn't empty himself of being God. He was still God. He emptied himself of the appearance of God. He was willing to take on the appearance of a man and even live a mortal life. And Jesus was and will always be in equal part with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. But if you're a new Christian this morning, or, or maybe you're not a Christian, or, or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, we know that this whole idea of like Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit is kind of confusing. Like how can God be one and three at the same time? Like a really good question. Like and our finite minds like can't necessarily grasp it. Um, but even if we're somewhat confused with this, the main takeaway that I want you guys to see this morning is that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man 
and yet Jesus still humbled himself. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. What other religion has a deity at the head of it who's willing to make itself like a commoner to humble itself enough to lay down its life in order to redeem its creation? What other religion? None. There's none other. It's only Jesus. So God the Son, who, who's equal and one with God the Father and the Spirit, chose to not grasp that equality and instead to make himself obedient. So verse 8, he says this. So God humbles himself. He takes on the form of man. Verse 8, it says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus humbles himself to the point of obedience, so much so that he's willing to die for you and I. And this obedience that Jesus had was not a small thing. Like not only did this obedience mean leaving heaven, it, it, it meant li living this difficult human life. It meant suffering this agonizing death. It meant taking on the sins of the world and the unbearable consequences. It meant suffering and death. And Jesus' Jesus's humbled mind sets this example for us in every way. Like he loved us enough to humble himself for us. His humility was this mark of love for his people. And this is what Paul wants from the Philippians. This is what he wants from us. Jesus had the one and same mind, same love, full accord, no selfish ambition, no conceit, counted others as better, looked out for others. He was obedient even to death on a cross. My question that I'll leave you with this morning what does our obedience look like? Do we walk in step? Are we willing to lay our lives down? Are we obedient enough to like getting off the couch when God's prompting us to go do something? Are we obedient enough to the point of laying down even our hobbies and these great freedoms that we have in order to walk in obedience to what the Spirit is asking us to do? To do? Are we obedient enough to let the bank account dwindle because God's asking us to give it away in all honesty? Are we obedient enough? I mean, you look at our, our missionaries that we send out from our church. They've literally left family and friends to go serve in other countries. What a cool thing. Willing to lay down all my wants and desires in order to just do what the Lord is prompting me to do? Are, are, we obe are we willing to be obedient enough to the point of awkwardness? I mean, imagine that setting with Paul as this girl's chasing after him, calling him out, <laughs> and finally what's Paul do? Hey, praise for this girl, and this girl gets delivered. Did that not look awkward in the midst of the crowd? Like, come on, that's weird stuff. What things are the Lord, is the Lord prompting in you? And on a bigger level, as we talk love, joy, peace, hope over the coming weeks, as we sort of celebrate Advent and we work into this Christmas season, the question isn't all, how is God's joy at work in you? That's part of it. Because I think Paul's thing is, if you want to complete my joy, then it's not only at work in you, it's actually at work through you because that's the model that Jesus set for us. 
he didn't hoard it to himself. He shared it with us. As we come into these coming weeks, my prayer for us as a church is that we'd be a church that would stop, notice others, lay down our agendas to give a hand to somebody else, to pray for somebody, to help somebody in need, to sit with somebody, have a cup of coffee with somebody who needs a friend. I mean, you go down the list, who are the people in your life that God is asking you to allow his hope and his joy, his love and his peace to emanate through you? Are we willing to lay down our lives to empty ourselves as Christ did for us? Would you guys stand with me? I want to remind us this morning that we actually deserve death. And what Jesus afforded us was new life. Like it was actually our sin that deserved the consequence that Jesus got. It was our punishment to take for you and I, but Jesus, he lays down his life on the cross for us anyway, even though it wasn't his to own. He did it on our behalf. He took our place. He took our punishment. And this morning, like, some of you just need that reminder. This is what Jesus did for you. What's it look like to have the mind of Christ? What's it look like to walk in love and peace and joy and hope and allow those things to emanate through you. Like those things don't emanate through you unless you humble yourself enough to empty yourself and allow Jesus to do what he wants through you. Because when we put up our guards and we become all about what we can get and we leverage our relationships, we leverage the venues we put ourselves in based off of what's best for us and what gets us furthest and gets us most, we start to actually lay down the mind of Christ that he died to give you. So what does it look like to take on the mind of Christ this morning? And are there any of you in this room that maybe is a starting point? I mean, we're going to have people getting baptized this morning that are basically, they've professed their faith in Jesus, but this morning, they're going to go down in that water, and it's cold. I filled that thing last night. It is cold. And they might not come back up out of the water this morning, but it's okay, because they're saved. Uh, But... They're going to go down in that water as a picture, as a picture of what Jesus did for you and I, making the old new, dying to ourselves to allow Christ to resurrect us with new life. And my prayer leading up to this morning has been that there's some of you that have been hesitant to actually give your lives to Jesus, because to you all it is is religion, all it is is a book, all it is is forms and functions. And yet you've never heard the fact that there's a spirit and the, the fact that there's the mind of Christ, that you get to partner with him in this work. The fact that he's at work in you and through you. The fact that you're not just serving some God and doing what he says, but he's actually laying his life down to bestow his life in you. And this morning, the, the picture we get to see as people are getting baptized is people saying like, taken this step. And and so the call to each of you this morning is one, if you're a believer and you feel secure in your faith, that's awesome. Pray for these people. Pray for others to come to know Jesus, just like these people have taken that step themselves. But for those of you in this room that don't know Jesus, let this morning be a little reminder to you of the life that Jesus wants to give you.
not religion, life that he wants to give you. A renewed heart and a renewed mind. The love, joy, peace, and hope of Jesus that only he can give us, he wants to give to you this morning. And so if you haven't come to know Jesus, you haven't accepted him as king of your life, Lord and Savior, please come grab one of us. We would love to pray with you and partner with you in that decision as you make it this morning. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to worship, and we'll bring some folks in, and we'll do some baptisms. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you again for your church. I thank you for the life that you give us, Jesus. I thank you, God, what an honor to serve a God that humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for us. What an honor. And Jesus, I pray that um, not one person would leave this room this morning without at least acknowledging the weight and the amazingness of what you did for us, Jesus. And so God, we give you this time this morning. We pray that you be at work in the marriages and the relationships and the individuals in this room. You know who they are, God. You see them. You know exactly what's going on in their life, and I can't help but think you're just waiting for them to acknowledge what their needs are so that you can step in and meet them. And I pray this morning as they call upon your name, Jesus, you meet them in this place. God, I thank you for the opportunity to do these baptisms. Thank you for people that are proclaiming that you are King of kings and Lord of lords in their life. And I pray as we taking these baptisms this morning, God, that you would just remind each person that's being baptized of just the, the weight of the decision they made, but the life and the joy and the peace and the hope and the love that comes with it. Jesus, we pray all of this in your name this morning. Amen.